WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. And this week's guest is the co creator of Bitter Rooted Image and Naomi at DC, as well as the writer of Imposter Syndrome, his creator owned project currently crowdfunding on Zoop. Please welcome David F. Walker. Hello. How are you both doing today? Excellent. How about yourself? Oh, man, I, I, I'm putting out a collection of stories called imposter syndrome. Doesn't that say that says it all right? Like I'm I, actually I'm actually doing really well. It's it's uh, it, I'm I'm actually doing so well that I almost feel like a liar for putting out um, something called imposter syndrome. But don't worry, I, I will be self-deprecating and full of self-loathing as we as this show progresses. Okay, <laughs> good, good to know. Uh, so you did a uh, you did a couple panels at uh, WonderCon a couple of weeks ago, just as the campaign for imposter syndrome was starting. Uh, first of all, how was the show, and uh, was it your your first con back in the wild? I did one con last year. I did uh, Rose City Comic Con, which is here in Portland, where I live, and mm-hmm. um, and you know, and that's sort of like it, it, it's not to knock the show, but that's that's. To me, that feels like a low key show. It's 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 10 minutes from where I live. So mm-hmm. all I actually have to do is put on clean underwear and just go. It's it's not there, it's not very high stakes. So WonderCon was the first big show I've done since uh, uh, since the pandemic started. And it was also, amongst other things, the, my first time on an airplane, my first time out of town, you, you name it, like everything. It might have even been the first time I used a, a public restroom. So um it was. It wasn't nearly as bad as I as I had feared it would be. That was actually a really good experience, mm-hmm. but um, it was also weird because, like, within four or five days of, of getting home, it was like I was I was kind of like Dorothy at the beginning of Wizard of Oz, right? Like it's mm-hmm. that sepia tone, and then she goes to Oz, and then it's full color, and then she goes back to Kansas, and it's like life sucks again. So. Um, that's, that's kind of what going to WonderCon was like, it was like, oh my God, there's, there's other people in the world and, you know, we can talk about comic stuff and geek stuff. And then it was back home and, you know, stuck to the desk, but, but it was good. I'm, I'm actually planning on doing, um, at least a few other shows this year. I'm, I'm going to Heroes in North Carolina and, um, probably going to go to emerald city and and maybe see tui too and Mm -hmm. um still sort of figuring it out it's it's um like well this is a total non sequitur i guess maybe i i was planning on cutting back on going to conventions uh in 2019 i was like okay Mm -hmm. 2020 2021 i'm gonna cut back and then covid like screwed up my life as it did everybody else's life and and I was like, man, I miss going to conventions. I'm going back to conventions as soon as I can. And then like one day back at WonderCon, I was like, oh, wait a minute. It wasn't, I was going to cut back before, you know, uh, before COVID ruined everything. So uh, yeah, that was a long-winded answer, wasn't it? Um, but yeah, that's it. It was, it was a good show. It was a good show. Long-winded answers are good. We're off, we're, <laughs> we're off to the races. <laughs> we like them. Uh, clearly, clearly that nap that I took this morning gave me a, a bout of energy that I didn't have several hours ago. Excellent. Uh, so uh, as we continue in the warm up, um, I was Twitter stalking <laughs> you in prep for the interview. And I saw that you you saw everything everywhere all at once. Yes. Uh, d- tell us, uh, 
did you like it? I mean, I know you did because, you know, I read it, but this is an excuse to talk about the first movie I've seen twice in a theater in a week in years. I loved it so much. Wow. Um, I, I absolutely loved it. It was, um, it, it's funny because I went and saw it with, um, in no big secret, but I went and saw it with Brian Bendis, who's a really good friend mm-hmm. of mine. And and he was pestering me to to come out. And I, I'm, I become very reclusive. Um, since the pandemic and there was a special screening which was taking place a couple days before I was to fly down to Anaheim for WonderCon so I felt like okay this will be a good warm-up of being in public right and so I went with Brian and and there was a small group of us um, and and him and I used to go to the movies all the time and it was but I'd never been with him to the movies like when he was 12 and and I kind of imagine that this is what it was like because he I've never seen him like nerd out and get this geeky during anything. And I was feeling it on the inside, but I just was sort of sitting there with my my like just sort of slack jaw. Like, I, ca- I can't believe I'm seeing a movie. I'd given up on being excited by movies in the theater. Like mm-hmm. the, the last movie I saw in the theater before the pandemic was uh was it the rise of skywalker or whatever that the last of the last of those star wars movies so i i remember thinking yeah i may never go to another movie again in the theater like i was so disappointed then like you know a month and a half later covid hits and then i felt like maybe that was my fault like maybe i had you know put a curse on the world um but i i was like i can't stop thinking about it i'm I'm actually going to go see the movie again uh, within the next week or so, it was just, um, you know, for me as as a storyteller, I'm always looking for something that that um, that inspires me and makes me feel like I could never be this creative, right? That's that's the feeling I want. I, I don't want to feel like, oh man, I could do that. That's you know, anybody can. And of course, a lot of us have that about things that we couldn't do even if we tried. But this was one of those movies where like every sequence I just it just made me think how did they come up with this how did they you know how did they conceive of it from the beginning as as writers to what was it going to look like once they started putting it together visually and um I'm just like I'm just happy to know that there's still something out there that can really sort of talk to the talk to the the kid in me because I was I was that nerdy kid who loved movies I I would um you know, I would go, this will date myself, but, you know, I would get Starlog magazine every time it came out and, and there was, you know, Sin Fantastique and Fangoria. Um, and I would get all this stuff in, in the eighties. And so I, I was just, especially when it was sort of sci-fi fantasy, I would go see everything. And, and I was, even as a kid, I was pretty disappointed by things. It was very rare that I saw something that just made me think, like again, it was aspirational in terms of that creativity, and and that's what this was. I'm just still, I'll be talking about this one for years to come. A friend of mine said, and I, I it didn't occur to me as I was watching the movie, but he said it afterwards when we were texting back and forth that he hasn't seen a better Clark Kent to Superman transition since Christopher Reeve of uh, <laughs> Ki Hu Kwan, when he takes off the glasses and shifts to Alpha Wayman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, there's been some comparisons, obviously, to um, 
like the matrix that's that's the one a lot of people use oh i haven't felt like that in a movie since the matrix and and i i love the matrix i still think it's a great movie but there's a there's a certain degree of humanity that um that that everything everywhere has that the matrix just doesn't quite have right um and and i think part of it is and this is really crucial i don't know if this happens to either of you um i i feel aged out of a lot of things. I feel like a lot of pop culture is not geared towards me. Like I'm no longer in that demographic. I watch, you know, I saw Spider-Man Far From Home and and I was like, oh yeah, I'm like 40 years too old for this movie. You know, I feel that way with just about everything. But um, but this movie in particular, and I think it was Michelle Yeoh's character, like it really resonated with me as, as someone who's older and and sort of feels like, I don't have it in me to save the world anymore. Like we, we get a little bit more cynical and a little bit more lost. And, and that's part of what I loved was that, that audaciousness um, there's, you know, and there's a couple of things recently in pop culture that sort of touch upon it, but not like this. I mean, I, I, I enjoy Cobra Kai simply because they're both middle-aged men. Right. And it's like, like, they just don't make stuff for us anymore. But uh, yeah, no, I just, I, I love it. And and it's, it's, in fact, it's one of those movies, like I still buy Blu-rays. So I will buy that on Blu-ray, study the hell out of it. I'm waiting for the Criterion version that will come out. I will be double and triple dipping on that one. Preaching to the choir. <laughs> the physical media choir. But, yeah. But, but, but now it's time to actually, you know, get down to brass tacks. Yeah. Um, okay. You are here to talk yeah. about your currently in funding project, Imposter Syndrome. Yes. Here's the crowdfunding pitch for those unfamiliar. From the neurotic mind of writer David F. Walker, the Eisner Award-winning co-creator of Bitterroot and Naomi comes Imposter Syndrome, a 100-page collection of six short comics, one prose short story about zombies, and some other random nonsense that must be seen to be believed. Uh, so you wrote most of these uh, over the course of the dark times, the pandemic. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, it's so it's really interesting. I th- There's... I had the opportunity starting in in 2018 and 2019 to write some shorts for different anthology collections. Um, I wrote, I wrote one for a DC holiday special. I wrote one for Greg Rucka for um, tales of the old guard. um, And there's a few others. And I hadn't written a short comic story in a long time. And each of these was incredibly challenging. And, but it, it also, in each instance, I was paired with an artist that I'd never worked with before that I just had a really great time. I challenged myself creatively and, and I had so much fun that I wanted to do more shorts and I wanted to do more shorts working with artists that I either had never worked with or I hadn't worked with that much. And so I just kind of started putting together these shorts. I, I had no real plan for them. Uh, and, and this was in like 2019 and 2020. So the pandemic had started um, when most of these went into production. And, and there was that, that moment in like, well, in 2020, where we all sort of foolishly thought like, 
okay, yeah. Like there were some of us that thought there, that the that the pandemic would be over in a matter of weeks. There was then there was the rest of us that were realistic and thought, oh, six months at the most, right? And then as it started dragging on, it was like, holy crap, um, you know, what what's happening here? What are we, you know, what are we doing with our lives? Um, and as these shorts were being drawn by the different artists, I was thinking the, the original plan had always been to take each one of these shorts and have them printed up as their individual, as individual mini comics. And there was going to be a series of like five or six of these mini comics that the plan was in 2021, when the convention circuit opened up again, I would have these mini comics available at conventions, right? Um, and, and then as the convention scene didn't open up in 2021, at the same time, there was a paper shortage and, and print costs started to go way up. And so, A, there was no need to do the, the to actually make the mini comics because there's no, you, you can't, you can only sell those at conventions. Um, and I, and I love getting them when I'm at shows and I love selling them, but outside of that, there's not much of a market. And then because of the rising cost of, of printing and paper, it stopped making sense like halfway through 2021. And that's when I decided, okay, you know, I'm just going to put these together in a single collection. And that way, when conventions do open up again, I will ultimately have just one thing to sell instead of five or six. But that if, if the convention scene doesn't open up the way I hope it does, or if I choose not to go back into it, I will also have a, you know, a piece of work that some retailers would be willing to carry. Most retailers won't carry a mini comic or a collection of mini comics. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how it came together. It's not as, it, it's not like I was suddenly hit with this urge to do, hey, I'm gonna do a bunch of shorts and they're, they're all gonna be essentially under one roof or in between you know, one front and back cover. It kind of came together a series of different projects that suddenly made sense just to put them all together. and. And even as I'm saying that, I don't know if it actually makes sense to do it now, now that I'm deep into the, the woods on the crowdfunding. There's a quote on the campaign page from you that says, imposter syndrome is a cross between a cry for help and an exorcism of the demons that haunt me. Yeah. With something like that, releasing something that is that personal, does that have a different vibe for you putting that out there than your normal comic book work or is everything personal in its own way you know everything is is personal in its own way but i think the, the thing that's different with this is um like, like i'll give you an example i did a I, I wrote a short for dc um for one of their holiday specials that uh that gustavo duarte drew and gustavo is, a, is an amazing artist who I've, I've been wanting to work with for years and i'll be i'll be 100 honest the whole reason i did that particular story was because I wanted to work with Gustavo and I knew I was never going to have the money to pay him out of pocket. So here DC foots the bill. I get to work with an artist who, who might absolutely love his work. And then I got paid some money that I then just turned around and funneled into paying another artist to draw a short for me. Right. Um, but there, there is something about that story that I did with Gustavo that, that really, there is this personal vibe to it. Now, the fact of the matter is it's, it's got characters that I don't own, so it can only be so personal. Um, as my career has, has, I've reached a point in my career where if I'm 
doing work that's not purely work for hire, um, it's about as personal as it gets, right? Like, like I've just discovered I really love doing this. And I, I, I go back to why I was making comics when I was a kid and, and you know, what it did for me on a creative level, what it did for me um, just a, a, in sort of a sense of self-esteem. And, and I'm trying to, just trying to recapture that. And, and as I was looking at all of these shorts, that, that now make up imposter syndrome, what I, I didn't see the theme originally in them. I didn't see anything that connected them, but there was, you know, there's one short that that's literally about, it's, it's my attempt to be as funny as one can be about dealing with chronic depression. Um, there's one short story. It's one of the few that has actually appeared somewhere else uh, it's, a, it's a story called Heart of the Matter, which appeared in an anthology that came out like a year or so ago. Um, and that was my take just on the creative process and, and how difficult it can be without it being, but it's, 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 you know, couched within a sort of gangster urban crime thriller setting, right? It was, so it's, there's been a lot of just me clearly working through the, the shit that I, I have been able to work through during the pandemic and, and that um, my therapist just can't seem to get a hold of and give me advice on. So I put it into my comics. Is there a, a book, a, a specific book that you have taken on in, in your career that maybe had you feeling some of that, uh, you know, imposter syndrome kicking in? Oh, every single one every single one, you know, um, it's, 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 uh, it's funny because, you know, when I, I talk to other creators and, and, you know, this is the dark secret that a lot of us have. I mean, I know more creators who deal with this and, and they just don't publicly admit it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you were asking about WonderCon earlier, you know, at WonderCon, I had people come up and, they had, you know, copies of, of various different books that I'd worked on and they wanted me to sign them. And I'm what's running through my head as I'm signing every single one of these comics is like, oh my God, this is the worst thing I ever wrote. Why would you even buy this? This is terrible. Like, what's wrong with you? Are you people nuts? I don't really totally feel that way, but there's, 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 it's difficult for me to, to look at anything I've written and, and give, it's like I can give credit to it's almost like there's like I have a dual identity there's there's the good writer in me who is he's like my Tyler Durden in Fight Club right so like there's there's the the Tyler Durden writer who you know he kicks ass and can get everything done and then there's the other writer who's like has no self-confidence whatsoever and and is pretty much convinced at any moment you know, people are going to figure out that, that I'm a big fake and I'm a big phony, you know, and, um, and, and the truth is I felt I've, I've been this way pretty much my entire life. Right. Like I remember the first time I, I made honor roll in junior high and I was convinced that somehow the teachers had like given me the wrong grades and that me making honor roll was a mistake. Right. Like that's just, I'm nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and that's what I, and, and I feel like I don't mind talking about it. I've been teaching now for, for like seven years, I've been teaching at Portland state university. And, and so I'm working with a lot of like young people that are late teens, early twenties. And I, and I recognize in them the same sort of neuroses and lack of self-esteem that I had when I was that age. 
that while it's never quite gone away, I've just learned how to live with it. I've learned how to accept the fact that, you know, oh yeah, I've won an Eisner. Oh yeah, I've won a Ringo. Oh yeah, I've got some projects that are in development in Hollywood. And I still have the self-doubt. I still have the depression. And the mistake that I made was thinking that with each achievement I would get that somehow these feelings would go away and they don't. It's, it's like no amount of praise, no amount of money is going to make it go away. It's, it's something that you have to learn how to combat. And that's sort of like, I, I feel like that's one of the things I need to talk about and I need to explain to, to young people and to fans that it's like, yeah, you, you, you may never quite get over it. You just learn how to, to navigate around it. It's like, when you're driving somewhere and, and the road is closed and you got to take a detour that adds three hours to your trip, you still got to get to where you're going, you know? Are there, are there things that I'm looking for the opposite of trigger, which is, is, is to mean things, experiences, connections that sort of make some of those feelings go away or help you manage them, uh, you know, in certain periods of time? Yeah. You know, I mean, I can, it's, it's interesting because if like, if somebody comes at, uh, if someone comes at me or if they're super hypercritical, usually it's like, you know, some trolls or something out there. Sure. Um, if, if somebody says something that I know is categorically untrue about the work that I've done, mm-hmm. um, like the imposter syndrome will go away. The kid gloves will come off and I'm like, Hey, do you want to step outside and settle this the old fashioned way? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've literally challenged people online to like, okay, this is the next convention I'm going to be at. I will meet you outside the convention center. Um, and, and we will throw down, you know, to this, to this day, no one has taken me up on that. Um, <laughs> but it's, so it's interesting. It's, it's like, I can call my children ugly and say they smell funny, but if you say my kid is ugly, if you say my kid smells funny, we're, we're going to get into a fight. Right. Um, and, and so it's not so much a trigger as it's, I think for me, like when I think about my own imposter syndrome, it, it, it springs from the fact that I am never able to execute fully what I imagine, right? It's, it's one of the reasons I stopped. I, I, I always wanted to be a comic book artist. I could never draw what I could see in my mind. As a writer, I come much, it, it's much easier for me to get closer to that, um, to get to that, that, that goal of what I imagine, I can actually create it with words. So I don't, you know, it's not like I think I'm a total loser or a total liar most of the time. Um, you know, once in a while, there'll, there'll be something that I'll look at. It's usually work for higher stuff where I feel like, oh God, this is like, you know, I, I should, maybe I shouldn't say this publicly. Right. But I wrote Luke Cage for Marvel. <laughs> this was after I did Power Man and Iron Fist. There was, it was a series that lasted only 10 issues. And of those 10 issues, one and a half of them were good, right? And, and, and I can say that that's not me being, you know, beating myself up. That's, that's me very realistically going, okay, from what I pitched to what I wrote to what I had to rewrite, um, you know, issues two through nine went through so many changes that they weren't even close to what I had imagined. Issue one was about halfway there. And, and since issue 10 was the final issue, nobody cared what I was going to do. So I got to write an issue that I wanted. Um, so when I look at that, and, and I'm very careful because publicly, I, I, I very seldom say anything hypercritical of that series because I know there's people who like it and I don't ever want to take that away from them. Right. I mean, 
there's uh, I love the movie DC Cab with Mr. T, right? And and if Mr. T ever did an interview and said that it was the worst experience of his life and he hated DC Cab, I think my heart would break, right? So, um, <laughs> but if if Mr. T were to also say, yeah, you know, I think my if he said, yeah, I think my work in Rocky Three was better than DC Cab, uh, I'd probably you know I'd have to respect that. And um, and so for me, the, the the biggest triggers I guess are. You know, it's 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 difficult for me when someone likes really likes something that I know for one reason or another simply isn't the best work that I can possibly do. Um, I don't think anything I've ever done is 100 percent. And although I will say that the the, the stories and imposter syndrome come the closest to 100 percent of me feeling good about it, um, if it's work for hire, it's like I don't think you can ever get like beyond 85% for me, you know, there's, there's a couple of things I did at Marvel, a couple of individual issues that I, I feel like, like so ecstatic about still to this day, there was a Power Man and Iron Fist holiday special that I did. There was, uh, I, I was part of a team that did um, this really weird Deadpool story. There was like four chapters. One was by myself, Jerry Duggan, Charles Soule, I can't remember who did the other, might've just been the three of us, but like I, I, as someone who wasn't the world's biggest Deadpool fan, I found that character incredibly fun to write. And, and, and I, and I was worried it would suck. And and I felt that it, I, I look at that one again. And if someone were to walk up to me and say, Hey, you're, you know, Luke Cage and and Iron Fist team up with Deadpool is the worst thing I've ever read. I'd probably punch him in the face because I'd be like, no, 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 you know, Luke Cage number four. That's the worst thing I've ever written. You know, so with 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 Cage, was it a matter of of you know you and and sort of Marvel notes clashing? Was it just sort of like you know revi- revising it? It was it was every it was everything you could possibly imagine. At that point, the Netflix show had come and it was a hit. Mm. They were never sure if they wanted the comic to be more like the show or not and and there was there was ideas that I had pitched that had been greenlit and then um had been taken away from me and and that's one of the things that that is frustrating that a lot of people don't get when you're working for a company like say Marvel mm-hmm. you may be working on a title and and they may have approved 12 issues right but then issue two doesn't sell as well as they'd hoped and so that 12 issues is now cut down to six and you've got to do a rewrite or they're doing their big event series for the summer. And suddenly, and this happened to me during secret empire where Hawkeye was one of the main characters in secret empire. He was the, he was the lead character in the book I was writing occupy Avengers. And I suddenly get the note. Oh, by the way, you can't use Hawkeye for the next I want to say it was going to be five issues, but then they canceled the book after like the next three. So it was like, okay, I'm out of that hot water. I don't even have to try to juggle that. Um, and, but those are the sort of limitations that, that you can hit. I, you know, during civil war two, there was a lot of limitations and I was able to work around them, but with secret empire, I wasn't. And I was just, it, that was, that was when officially it all stopped being fun for me that and, and Luke Cage and, and I'd had high hopes for Luke Cage because it wasn't going to be tied in to anything big at the time. Um, and, and I remember talking to Charles Soule about what he had going on in Daredevil. 
which at the time was when Kingpin was going to become the mayor of New York. And, and Luke Cage was originally that series that I wrote was, was supposed to tie into that. And that was by choice. And I talked to Charles about what his plans were for Wilson Fisk. Mm-hmm. And I put together a proposal and, and everybody seemed to love it at Marvel. And then at the last minute, they changed it. And, that's, and, and when I say the last minute, by issue two, they had changed it. And, and that story arc was supposed to take us all the way through to what turned out to be issue 10. And, and it was then for me that sort of the, the, um, the allure of, of working for these big companies, by then it was completely gone. It was like, you know, okay, it's one thing if I write a story that's not good and doesn't sell well, but I, it, does, it, it doesn't work and it doesn't sell well because it's on me and it's on my shoulders, right? But when, you know, editorial sends you a note and says, well, we're trying to phase out the fact that, you know, Luke Cage is married to Jessica Jones and they have a kid, so you can't reference them in your stories. And it's like, yeah, but that's a major part of the character, right? And they're like, nobody cares about that. It's like, no, trust me, the fans are going to care. And then then you start getting the angry emails. Where's, you know, where's Jessica? Where's the baby? And it's like, and then they forget editorial forgets that they told you that nobody's going to care and they come to you and say well people are really upset that you didn't have jessica and the baby in the series and it's like yeah i told you that they were going to feel this way right and and nobody remembers that nobody wants to remember the one that they were the stupid one right i love to be reminded of that i'm the stupid one and and i i tell people this all the time and in 1989 a friend of mine played me NWA straight out of Compton for the first time. And I said, oh, this gangster rap shit is never going to take off. I've never been more wrong in my entire life. And I still own that to this day. Um, I also thought casting Michael Keaton as Batman was not a good idea at first, but I I quickly backpedaled on that one before the movie came out. So Mm -hmm. I don't consider that to be a major mistake, but you know, if you can't, if you can't own your mistakes, if you can't own your dumb decisions, you know, what are you going to do? Oh, you can become president of the United States. Oh, sorry. Oh, you just... almost. Oh, you beat me to that one by about. <laughs> oh yes. It's a happier topic. They oh, <laughs> anything, but um, can you talk about the artists you're working with? Uh, who are they, and how did you come yes. to ask them to join the project? Well, so with the original stories, um, uh, uh, there's a guy named St- Steve Wilhite who drew two of them. And Steve is someone that I've known uh, really since we were kids. We met, we were doing conventions in the 80s. And, um, you know, and this was back when most conventions were simply, uh, you know, glorified flea markets where, and there'd be like two or three kids trying to sell their hand-drawn comics. And that's where I met Steve we hit it off. And, and over the years, we've talked about doing something. He's, he's got a regular day job, you know, he's got a, a you know, family, but we've stayed in touch over the years. And, and, um, and when the opportunity came up, when I realized I wanted to do some shorts, I knew he was the guy that I wanted to work with. He was at the top of my list. So I reached out to him. Um, we did a story together called attack of the depression monster, which I, I absolutely loved. If the, um, if I had gone with the original plan of doing the, the mini comics, Attack of the Depression Monster would have been the very first one. Um, and then there was a, a, a story that just 
very recently he ended up drawing for me called Crash Landing, which was um, came out of a conversation of, of like talking to my students about how you 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 shouldn't be married to your words as a comic book writer you should be prepared to write a story that has no words at all and you should be willing to let go of your ego enough that when people quote unquote read your story even if there's no words there you know you no one's probably going to give you credit for it, whatever you should be cool with that and and as I started thinking about what it would be like to to write essentially a silent story then I thought about, well, who's, who's an artist that is capable of that level of heavy lifting? Um, and, and Steve, again, came up and, and we were talking about doing another project. And I said, Steve, do you want to try this thing out? And, and he said, yeah. And I said, how do you want to do this? And he said, well, let's try Marvel style, you know, where that's where I just give him a basic outline of what happens on each page. And it went so well that now we're actually doing something much longer um, that we're actually talking to a real publisher about doing. Um, DJ Parnell, who did uh, this, uh, the story Bully, she, she, I've been working with her for several years on, a, on my webcomic, on and off on my webcomic called Discombobulated. And, and I was talking to her during the pandemic and she was saying how she wasn't getting any work and she wanted to, to sort of branch out and stretch her stretcher wings, I guess, is that the right term? Um, and and I, I was putting together Bully at the time and I thought, well, you know, originally Bully, Bully is meant to be 10 short stories, um, all autobiographical, all dealing with my experiences with bullies from kindergarten through college. And, and originally I was going to get 10 different artists to draw, draw it. And uh, DJ came on board, she drew the first story and, and, and here's the crucial thing. Each one of these stories is meant to be read on its own. You don't have to, you can read them out of order. Um, but she did such an amazing job. I was like, hey, how would you feel about drawing these other, you know, nine stories? And she said, well, you know, she's not the fastest artist in the world. Am I willing to be patient? And I said, yes. And so, um, but I was also, I loved the work she had done on with bullies so much. as like, let me just show this to people. And because it stands out on its own. Um, Mark Bright, who did uh, Heart of the Matter, which again was published somewhere else, um, you know, he he was one of the guys working on Milestone back in the 80s and 90s and um, Quantum and Woody. I mean, his run on Quantum and Woody with, with Chris Priest is one of my, I think, one of the best comics um, of that era. And, and so, but, the, and that comes down to like, that was just a chance encounter. It was... Um, uh, the, the folks at, at, at Fair Square Press, when they approached me about doing this anthology, um, and I, I was like, yeah, I don't know if I've got a short in me. And they, they pushed, and I was like, okay, you know, and I wrote something, and then they said, oh, Mark Bright is going to be the artist. Suddenly, I got excited about the possibilities, because he is part of that era um, that, that I grew up with, you know, even, even though when he was doing Quantum and Woody, I was, you know, probably in my late teens, early twenties at that point. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think who else. Brett Weldley is doing the spot illustrations for um, uh, my zombie story. And, and I'm trying to think who else, who else is there? There's not, isn't that terrible? I should have written it down before we sat down, but, um, but, but DJ and Steve seem to be the ones that have the most 
on there. Uh, there's more of them than there is anybody else in this one. And, and if this goes well, and fingers crossed, it will, I'd like to do at least one more collection. I mean, you know, when I was at my, Will Eisner is one of my favorite creators of all time, right? Um, and, and of course, Will wrote and drew all of his own work. Um, and in comics, it's, you get that a lot. You'll get creators who, who write and draw and they do their own stuff. Um, as I'm looking at my, my shelf right now, I see some stuff by Kyle Baker. That's just a, a series of short stories that he did. Um, of course, there's Will Eisner. There's a Jim Mahfood collection that I'm looking at. Um, and then there's all this stuff by Vaughn Bodie, who's one of my all-time favorites. And so you, you see that a lot from, from artists who also write, but you seldom see writers working with different artists. And whereas in the, in the literary world, in the prose world, yeah, you can, you know, Hemingway wrote a ton of short stories, you know, uh, James Baldwin wrote short stories. The, but that, that idea of a single writer writing the shorts that are drawn by different artists, for whatever reason, it, that's sort of fallen out of favor. Whereas if you pick up a lot of the old stuff from EC, I mean, Al Feldstein wrote most of that stuff. And, you know, Archie Goodwin wrote a, a ton of stuff. Um, and, and there were essentially entire issues of, you know, Two-Fisted Tales or Mad or whatever that were written by the same one or two people and drawn by four or five different artists. And, and we don't see that anymore. And, and I'm, because I'm a grumpy old bastard, <laughs> I want to bring that back. Did you consider drawing or even spot illustrating any of this yourself i mean you do sketches on twitter and such but yeah. I, I take it you didn't consider that <laughs> i did and at some point i have to there's there's enough people out there one of them being um well mike oming who's who's also a good friend of mine he's always encouraging me to draw more and, and then I'm always encouraging Bendis to draw more and we sort of go back and forth with each other. I think, I'll, I'll put it this way. I mean, I know imposter syndrome, we're gonna hit our goal with, um, with this crowdfunding. And, and, if it's, and if people like it enough that they wanna see more, then I will, I will find a way to draw a story. I actually have, at one point I was going to put uh, um, some of my old material in it. Like I have a bunch of old single panel gag cartoons that I, I did in the eighties and nineties that I was, you know, constantly trying to sell to like Playboy and, and magazines like that, that used to do like, you know, one panel comics. Um, none of that stuff ever sold, <laughs> but I felt like, Oh yeah, maybe I should put some of this in there. And, and I, I got, I got everything ready and, it just sort of was, it felt like I was taking up a lot of valuable space, a lot of valuable real estate. So I, I at this point, I don't see myself putting it in there, but I just, um, I picked up a bunch of uh, old uh, Jules Pfeiffer collections. I'm a huge Jules Pfeiffer fan. And, and so I, I've been studying his stuff because, you know, I mean, the, I, I feel like the best of the best can make the most complicated things seem simple. And, and Pfeiffer is one of those guys, but I've been studying some of his work and I was like, okay, with, you know, computers and, and digital tools, I think I might be able to pull something like this off where I could, you know, 
tweak characters a little bit, whether it's in Photoshop or something like Procreate and, and create something basic. So I'll, I'll tell you this, this is the truth. And I've said this before, I, my career in comics will never ever feel complete until I've written, drawn and lettered something that's 100% me. If, and, and so you know, we're talking about it right now, it's 2022. And I, I, you know, I'm a middle-aged man. If, you know, 10, 15 years from now, I still haven't done that. Know that it's the thing keeping me up at night. It's the, it's the, the, you know, um, that demon that's sort of like trying to bite your ass. Um, and, and I, because I do, I feel like the thing I, I loved about comics growing up as a kid and the thing I still love is, is, um, this idea that that you could do it all as long as you can do it all as long as you're willing to do it all and and there's creators who you know when i was much younger i wasn't a big fan of say linda berry and now i look at linda berry stuff and and i see it as as being works of genius right but whether it's will eisner linda berry jeff smith um you know, even, even Darwin Cook, like I loved his Parker stuff. And, and even though the, they weren't original stories, it's like, you know, what Darwin Cook did with Parker was like, oh my God, like it's, cause you can't, you don't get that in film. That, that, that whole idea of the auteur in, in film is, is bullshit. But in comics, you know, Sonny Liu, his book, The Art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai is, is pure genius. You know, Matt Wagner stuff, um, you know, with, with both Mage and Grendel and, and Howard Chaikin, American flag. I mean, we were, I was just talking to Matt Fraction about this the other day. Um, you know, American flag came out when I was in high school. And, and I remember thinking, you know, looking at it, aside from the fact that it was kind of titillating, it seemed like it was, it was, um, you know, forbidden fruit. It wasn't lost on me, like how much of that work he was doing. Right. And and that um, and I'm, I, I can't remember who the letterer on American flag was, um, but it, it was I would see that stuff. And and Mike Grell with um, John Sable. These are the things that that as I was really studying comics and getting serious about it, this was the stuff that I was turning to as much as I loved, say, Marv Wolfman and George Perez's run on New Teen Titans or Claremont and Byrne on, on X-Men, all of which I think still hold up. Like, like, yeah, the older I get, the more I, I, the older I got, the more I recognize that at the end of the day, these are sort of corporate comics. Whereas um, again, American flag was, I, I still look at that or, or star slammers, man. Walter Simonson, Star Slammers. I just, I just got, I finally got that giant, massive collection of it. And I'm just, you know, because I, I remember being a huge fan of, of Thor. I mean, I was a fan of everything Simonson had done going back to the seventies when he had done um, the Manhunter stuff with Archie Goodwin. Um, but Star Slammers came out and, and I was just old enough to look at it and go, you know, you sort of put the pieces together and you realize, okay, wait a sec the best stuff these guys are doing is the stuff that, you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't even thinking about it in terms of creator owned per se. It was just that, Oh yeah. Howard Chaikin's best stuff is when it's Howard Chaikin's stuff, you know? Uh, and I still feel that way. I still feel, I, 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 I was talking to um, 
not two, but talking about Matt Rosenberg. I think Matt Rosenberg as a writer, like, and I've told this to his face, like nothing he writes for Marvel or DC is ever going to be better than four kids walk into a bank. Um, and, and then his new one, um, which I can't think of the title takes place in like, what's the, the furthest place from here? Yes. And, and it's like, you know, I like what Matt's doing for what he's done for Marvel and DC, but it's like, like, I'll be a hundred percent honest, you know, we could, we could nerd out right now. The, the three of us could have a total nerd fest and between the three of us, we could name specific issues of X-Men or specific issues of Conan the Barbarian or Batman. But for the most part, what, what we love are those characters, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, I talk about this all the time. I mean, I know my absolute favorite Batman story. Um, I can't quite tell you the exact, it wasn't, it was a, like a summer annual or something that Michael Golden drew. I think Mike Barr wrote it. But for the uh, most part, the player on the other side, yes. Batman special number one. Yes. I saw those wheels turning. <laughs> yeah. My other podcast is a Batman podcast. Believe me. I'm frighteningly encyclopedic. Yes. Matt, Matt and... that needs to be a bumper sticker on your car. My other podcast is a Batman podcast. But, uh, you know, I mean, and there's some other really good Batman stories out there. Right. But that's the one that stands out the most. And honestly, when I think about Batman, that's the one I think about most often, but, but it's different for all of us. Whereas, um, you know, when I think about X-Men, the only two issues of X-Men at this point in my life that I care about are issues 141 and 142, the the original days of future past, which now means something different to me because I study those as a creator and I see that Claremont, Byrne, Austin, I think, uh, I think Tom Orzachowski was, was the letterer on that. Um, they put into two issues what now would take 12 issues, right? Like there's such an economy of storytelling, not an economy of words, by the way, because Claremont is wordy as hell. Um, but I, I study that sort of stuff and I, and I just go, okay, like so many people can, you know, they claim they, they love X-Men, but um very seldom do we talk about like the specific issues or the specific stories and and maybe it's it's i don't know maybe it's changed that that sort of nerdlinger like culture um but i i just i feel like oh yeah no the best stuff that anybody ever does is always once in a while there's you know yeah there's daredevil 181 we all know that one you know bullseye kills electra but like how many other issues of, of Daredevil do we really remember? And 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 the thing is, is like if you know when Frank Miller stopped doing Daredevil, Daredevil kept going. That's just how it is. That's what Marvel and DC do, right? Like those characters keep going. No one else could do American Flag, even even when other people did. You know, there was there's um, I know Chaykin had some some people do some some guest stuff. It was it was never the same, right? Um, and that's that's sort of what I think that's the 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 monster that I've been wanting to fight the most is that thing of creating that thing that nobody else can do it quite like you. And and again, you can't do it with Batman. I mean, we it seemed like you could 1986 when when Daredevil or not Daredevil when, when Frank Miller did Dark Knight. And it seemed like we're never going to see anything like this again. I mean, that was so groundbreaking. 
but now they've gone back to that well how many times right mm-hmm. um they've made movies that are basically that so i don't feel um I, I it's it's not to say that i'm not impressed with the talents that are out there when when it's mainstream comics when something is really good it's almost like a miracle because there's so many people out there that are that are messing with it that are tweaking with it that are going oh no we're getting ready to launch a whole new line of you know daredevil underwear and so therefore we can't do anything that would besmirch the image of you know of daredevil himself that's eh, just i just don't i don't i don't have much interest in that and so that's again a really long-winded way of saying yes i probably will draw something <laughs> hey we got to talk uh bar and golden batman and some darwin cook in there you just made my night <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny because like i mean this is all the stuff i love and it's it's kind of dated but i also know that you know i like i i, I was reading comics as far back as i can remember and I sort of fell out of love with the the, the medium and the industry, not the medium, but the industry, late 80s, early 90s, right at the dawn of image. And I, I kind of stepped away from comics for a while. And then when I came back, there was a there was a new generation of, of talent that, you know, interestingly enough, I would I would end up becoming friends with some of these people. Um, you know, there was there was Bendis and there was Greg Rucka both of whom are really good friends of mine. I, I'm, I don't really know Ed Brubaker that well, but he was part of that. And, and it was, I remember reading their comics, some of their early work going, wow, these are all guys that like, they stuck with comics when I gave up on them. And I gave up on them because I wasn't getting that sort of stuff. I mean, I, I wasn't one white out. I remember when I, when Bob Shrek at the time was still at Oni and, and he handed me, um, white out. And I said, Bob, I don't really read comics anymore. And he said, read this, you know, and it was Greg Ruckett and Steve Lieber. And I was like, holy shit, what am I looking at right here? And the same thing, I, I hadn't met Bendis or Omen yet. I read Powers and it was, a, mm-hmm. I remember reading Powers thinking, why am I not friends with these guys? Like, I, I felt like I was missing something. Part of it was I had, I had walked away from, from the art form because I, I, I didn't have the patience. I didn't think I was you know, my imposter syndrome was really bad at that point. Um, and, and it wasn't until that I really, you know, decided, okay, I'm going to just focus on the writing that, um, and there's a, there's actually going to be a story if, if, well, when we hit our goal, I've, I've, I've written a script about uh, how I met Will Eisner and the advice that he gave me that got me into, made me switch careers and 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 that story also involves harlan ellison and me almost getting arrested so it should be pretty interesting oh ellison (laughs) i had a buddy who worked in sci-fi publishing and one day he came into the comic shop and said you know he he had his rite of passage that day and i was like what do you mean well you're not considered to have made it in sci-fi publishing until you've been reamed out by harlan ellison and that happened to me over the phone today It's funny. I I didn't get reamed out by Harlan Ellison. I just happened to be in an, a situation where he was, quote unquote, disturbing the peace and they called the police on him. And when the police showed up, they decided or mistakenly that I was the one who was disturbing the peace. Uh. And so they went after me. And then he starts screaming at them about what racist pigs they are. And just it was 
it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, you know, Will Eisner just inspired me enough to give up my career in journalism and actually pursue comics. And now I'm going to die at the hands of these police because Harlan Ellison was ex- executing his right, uh, uh, his freedom of speech rights. And it was just, um, yeah, it was hilarious. But but that's that's something that I decided to throw in there. And that's going to be drawn by uh, by Jim Hill, who's uh, he's been out of the game for quite some time. Jim, Jim is an old friend of mine, and he was he did some comics for uh, for slave labor graphics, which nobody seems to remember anymore. Um, but he did a he did a series. I think it ran for like 12 issues called Caffeine. And um, and he was there when the cops came and um, were called on Harlan Ellison, but they decided to rough me up instead. So, um, yeah. And and I just I I'm drafting a letter right now. I'm already planning my next collection of shorts and I'm, I'm drafting a letter to the artists that I want to work with letters, I should say. And they're all some of them are people who I've named um, in this conversation. Walt Simon, Walter Simonson is one of the people I want to hire. Howard Chaikin is one of the people I want to hire. I feel like this first collection, as it just happened, it happened to be a lot of people that aren't that well established, might not be that well known, but they're either friends or people I'm fans of. And then now I'm like, okay, wait a sec. If I can do this, if I can make this work, I should do the sort of comics I've wanted to do. I've always, I've wanted to work with Walter Simonson since I was a kid. And now it's like, well, I better try to make this happen, right? Like I've, I've got, it's a, like a four pager for him. And, and if I can convince him to draw it, I will be as happy as a miserable old bastard like myself can be. One of the things that I, I, I think I saw that you had talked about in uh, an interview or a panel recently, uh, Bully, one of the, the shorts of imposter syndrome, you were planning on uh, expanding into a full graphic novel Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, that was supposed to include a little bit about your time at the uh, at the Kubert School, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a <laughs> it, it, it's still going to be there. That's it. It basically ends uh, right around my time at the Kubert School, and um, and I'm probably going to have to uh, like. Well, everyone's going to know what it is and what the school is. I'm definitely going to have to change some of the names. Um, and I'm sure the Kubert family would probably try to sue me in some capacity. Joe hated me, um, and and uh, which is fine. I deserved it. Um, he 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 threatened to have me arrested at one point. Um, but uh, and I was a troublemaker. I was a troublemaker. Troublemaker there. I've got a um, one of the guys that I went to school with at Kubert. He works in animation and I, I still talk to him, even though it's been 30 some odd years. And he's the one who's always like, oh, my God, you got to You got to tell these stories. You got to. And I'm like, all right, here they go. You know, so, um, yeah, there's I, I'm thinking of calling it um, changing the name. I got to change it. I can't call it the Joe Kubert School. I, I get the shit suit out of me. So um, and 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 I don't think Joe himself will make an appearance in or the Joe stand in. Mm-hmm. won't make an appearance in in bully because um he doesn't fit into that larger the story that i'm telling in bully but um i was and 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 in fact bully all the whole project came about um when someone someone had asked me like oh you know you, you went to the Kubert school and i was like yeah and you know i was essentially 
asked to leave or made it, it was made known that if I didn't leave, I was going to get kicked out. And, and someone said, oh my God, that's, that's an I want to hear that story. And I was like, no, you, you, no one's ever going to hear that story because I'm the bad guy. I was, I, everything that happened to me deserved to happen. I was, I was, and, um, and then I can't remember who it was. Someone said, well, wait a sec, you know, if you're, if you're the bad guy, but you're a storyteller, you should be willing to tell that story. And I started thinking about it and I started thinking, well, how can I, you know, how can I be, um, and ha- have the guts or the conviction to tell a story in which I'm the villain and, and, and not have it turn out like the, the Star Wars prequels. Right. So, um, so I kind of figured out how to make it work, which was like, you, it's an, it bully is an examination of, of, you know, all my life in elementary school, junior high, high school, I, I always took a stand against bullies and I, I, and I did get into a lot of fights, but I was, I would protect other kids on, on the playground, that sort of thing. But once I got to school at the Kubert school, I became a bully and I didn't realize I'd become the bully at that point in my life. Uh, it took me years to figure it out. Um, and it was the only time that I was really bad about it, but it was, um, and as everybody who knows me back then says, you know, oh no, if it wasn't you, it was going to be somebody else. Cause there's always that one kid that is like begging to be like humiliated and given wedgies on the playground. And I just, I just happened to get to him first. There's like, sometimes there's that slow moving gazelle and there's three or four lions eyeballing it. And they're like, okay, you know, flip a coin to see which one gets to kill the gazelle. I won that and I got to be the bully of Kubert school. So um, not anything I'm particularly proud of, but, but I do think as a storyteller, oh yeah, this, this shit could be kind of interesting. So we'll see what happens. So, I mean, this is far from the only iron you have in the fire. Yeah. Um, you, the second season of Naomi, uh, the DC series you co-created with Brian Michael Bendis and Jamal Campbell uh, just started back up in March. Yep. Uh, exciting to be back on the book. Uh, I'm excited to be working with Brian and Jamal. We'll, we'll, we'll put it that way. Like, like I love working with Brian and I love working with Jamal. Um, I, I, the, the, the honeymoon between myself and DC has long been over. Um, I don't, I don't think that they, I, I, I'm not going to say that I hate them and I don't think they hate me, but I don't think that, um, I think that there's, there's other writers out there that, that want it more than I do. Right. I, I just don't, um, it's Naomi. That's what I'm doing. I'm writing Naomi. I have a strong sense of ownership over that character. She feels like my daughter and, and, you know, it's, it's three men and a little lady is what it is. You know, it's, um, uh, and, and that's why I'm back there and it feels good to be working with Brian again and bouncing ideas off of, off of each other and then to see what Jamal comes up with and that I wouldn't trade for anything, but the, the reality is, and this is going back to what I was saying about, you know, creators like Chaikin and Simonson, like the three of us could do that again at another publisher with another set of characters without having to deal with the, the, the political machinery that is DC and Warner brothers and, and discovery and all the AT&T, you know, um, and, and, and maybe we will, we haven't, you know, we haven't had a serious discussion about that yet, but, you know, I, I talk to Brian pretty regularly and, and we've, we've often said, you know, 
you know, Naomi was, was really, was an offshoot of a lot of things, not the least of which was we never got to do at Marvel what we had wanted to do. Like it, it, it just sort of, um, his career ended there. Um, and then mine came to an end in part because Axel Alonso was let go and, and the politics of Marvel was like, I, I was considered to be part of Team Axel, I think, more than anything else. And there was, there was a group of creators that just wasn't getting as much work once he was gone. And I was like, okay, fine. You know, I'm, there, there's, there's two titles that I really wanted that I didn't get. And you know what? I haven't lost sleep over either of those. On more creator-owned? <laughs> um, uh, Bitterroot, which yeah. your book your image ended with issue 15, at least the initial story you had to tell with the, and I'm going to butcher this, and Sangri, would that be the proper pronunciation? Uh, you can pronounce it any way you want. It's one of those names that, that that's how we came up with it. I pronounce it Sangri, because uh, it's a word, it's a name that doesn't exist. I mean, we I made it up. Uh, Chuck and I took a bunch of words and mashed them together, so... But yeah, the Sangrier family. The Sangrier family. Um, but the afterwards there tells there, there's more to come. Have yeah. have you guys kind of had an idea of when you might be circling back? Yeah, we've actually, we just had a, a great meeting last week uh, about this. And, and in June, we're all going to be at Heroes Con in North Carolina together, which I think we're going to hopefully hash out final details and make some announcements we are um planning to do uh, an omnibus a hardcover collection of all three volumes of bitterroot that will include some new material that would come out early 2023 and then mid to late 2023 we would launch um a new mini series a bitterroot mini series which it's funny because we were we argue that the three of us argue all the time and, uh, you know, Sanford's like, well, I, I think we should do six issues, maybe even 10. And I'm like, dude, like none of us have that in us. How about we just do five? We commit to do five issue miniseries. And, and then if we do that, th- that wouldn't be that different than what we were doing. I was like, what if we commit to do five issues like once every year to year and a half? It wouldn't be that different than what we were doing before. But instead of doing, you know, this longer, you know, ultimately, which was, which was a 15 issue story, each five issue arc is its own story. And it's, it's self-contained that way, the retailers and the fans and, and nobody can get, they're only going to get upset that we're not giving them anything with, with great regularity, but we're making sure that we give them something good each time. And um, I just got a text from Chuck this morning and he was like, Hey, let's go over the, um, you know, what we're planning and, and, and Shelly Bond, who is our editor for uh, the second and third volumes, she's in on the conversations. I would said, you know, we've all sort of been in agreement that as long as Shelly is willing to come back and work with us, we want, like Shelly really became the fourth member of the team, more so than even um, Hassan, who was doing the lettering, did a great job. And, and Sophie, who was the colorist, um, also did an amazing job. And, and, and honestly, I, I don't know what it would be like to, to work with anyone else, but I also know that, you know, I, and I just said this to somebody the other day, I said, 
I don't think Bitterroot would have lasted if it wasn't for Shelly. She, um, there, there's just enough personality conflicts between Sanford, Chuck, and myself. I mean, we're we're more like brothers than we are creative partners, and we're brothers who don't get along, right? We're we're brothers who love each other, but it's like you know, Sanford is the one who forgets everybody's birthday. Chuck is the one who always gets upset that everyone forgets his birthday, and I'm the one who's resentful because I'm the only one who is like goes out of his way to bake a cake, whereas they they just go get me Twinkies or something from the store, right? So uh, we fight and we argue, but we love each other. <laughs> I have no experience like that at all with my two younger brothers who never remember my birthday. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and and it's great. I mean. It's it's I, I think when we wrapped up issue 15, we were all at a place where we just need to take a break from each other. You know, Chuck is he's currently working on Aquaman um, with uh, with Brandon Thomas over at D.C. I don't know what Sanford's doing something. He's he's very secretive. Right. Um, so so he's got something going on. Obviously, I've got my stuff that's going on. And, and I think that we all needed an opportunity to. Um, to sort of define ourselves in a, in a, I guess, for lack of a better term, a post bitter root world, like just find ourselves creatively. And, you know, cause I know I'm, uh, they may never admit it. They may never admit that they are hard to work with. I'm incredibly hard to work with. And I know this, and I know that the bitter root, if bitter root represents some of my best work as a, as a creative collaborator, I would say it also represents me at probably my most difficult as a, as a creative collaborator, right? Like, like there's, I will, I will beat the hell out of a story to make sure we get it right. You know, and Sanford gets mad at me and Chuck gets mad at me. And it's like, if it sucks, if an issue of Bitterroot sucks, it sucks because of us, right? Like I can, I can look at again, Luke Cage, you know, issues half of issue one, through all of issue nine and go, yep, these suck. And, but Hey, I can at least blame these other five people for it. Um, but when it's bitter root, if it's bad, it's bad. Cause it's me. It's bad. Cause it's Chuck. It's bad. Cause it's Sanford. And, and, and why would we set out to make something bad? And I think that's what a lot of people, a lot of fans don't get. And I think even a lot of creators don't necessarily get, no one sets out to make a shitty comic, right? I don't care what publisher it is. Nobody sets out to make something that sucks, but it's pretty easy for, you know, to shit the bed. We think that we're, we think we're, we're in control. You know, we think we're in control of our bowels and then, nope, nope. You just made a mess. You just busted all over the place. So um, I, I never thought if you had said to me, 10 months ago that I would be looking forward to doing more bitter root. I would have called you a liar. And, and I would have, I would have, I would have walked up and slapped you across the face and said, keep that title out of your mouth. Um, but, <laughs> but I am, I'm actually looking forward to, we've, you know, we've had so many great Chuck Sanford and I've had so many great conversations the last few months that, you know, I'm, I'm remembering what it is that like, I truly love them. I love, I love both of those guys with all my heart. Um, and, and we just needed to get away from each other long enough to remember that we, for me anyway, that, that I do love them and I have the ultimate respect for them. And, um, and, and I think that what we've done with Bitterroot 
is is just the beginning of what we're capable of as a team. So we'll see what happens. Uh, any momentum you can talk about on the film adaptation that was announced a bit ago? Um, not too much that, that I know of. You know, the the unfortunate one of the unfortunate things that happened was um, Regina King, who's who's um, attached to direct. You know, her and her family went through a tragedy at the beginning of the year, yeah. and and so the decision was sort of made. Well, we're just going to put the brakes on on everything until. Regina decides what she wants to do next um, and give her time to, to, you know, to grieve and, and to heal. And, and I, as near as I can tell, there haven't, there's no meetings that I've been aware of. And, and then on top of this, and when I say this stuff, it's, it's name dropping and it drives me crazy. Um, and then, and then Kugler is, you know, he's caught up in, in his stuff. And so everybody's really busy. Um, I, I'm, told that some point during the spring there's going to be another meeting and you know they're going to figure out some schedule stuff and everybody's still interested in doing it um you know it's and i think that this it's interestingly enough i think the success of dune which is you know legendary produced dune Mm -hmm. um i think the success of dune bodes really well for for bitter root in that you know, Dune did well financially during the pandemic, but it also won a bunch of Oscars. Mary Parent, who's the executive producer on that, is going to be the, is the executive producer on um, on Bitter Root, and I feel like like that's what they want. They want Bitter Root to be a tentpole um, franchise for them, and and you know, knowing that a those sort of things take time. And like, all I do is write comics, man. You know, I like, I don't know the first thing about, I mean, I do know a little bit about making movies, but, but when, we, when we're talking about that price point, you know, like, like I know what it is to make, you know, Roger Corman style movies, you know, movies that cost like $10,000 and have, you know, like one exploding car and a bunch of, you know, topless girls being chased by like guys in, in rubber monster suits. I, I don't, um, once we get past like a certain amount of money that's being spent, yeah, I don't even want to be in the vicinity of it, you know? Thinking about the Roger Corman, like bootleg sold at con version of Bitterroot the movie now. <laughs> oh, that would be good. That, see, I would be totally down with that. That If that were the case, I'd be fighting to like, okay, you know, we're making this, we're going to be on set and I want to direct it. And, you know, and we'll get, everybody I would want is dead now, but, you know, we, I, I would have wanted Yafet Kodo before he, you know, passed. And uh, he was an interesting guy. We won't talk, we won't talk bad about Yafet Kodo because he's dead, but um, like, I, I loved him as an actor. So uh, I would, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, the, going back to the Bitterroot film, um, and this is part of the reason why I have to draw my own stuff at some point. Like, I, I, I can't shake my fist at the folks at Legendary and go, you have to let me do this because there's two other guys, Sanford and Chuck, right? And, <laughs> and then suddenly they got three people shaking their fists at them and then they just decide not to make the movie, right? So I have to make something where it's just me so that when I shake my fist, um, the the like i'm the one who's going to blow the opportunity for myself right mm-hmm. um although i keep it like really low budget and and you know like a 
John Cassavetti's film or, or, or my dinner with Andre Louis Malls film. And like, then, then they'll let me make the movie. Cause it's just two actors and a camera set up, you know, what are you, uh, what are you reading right now? I am reading right now. Uh, let's see. Well, I got a bunch of old Jews, Jules Pfeiffer books um, that I'm going through. Uh, my friend Gary Phillips has a new novel out called, I want to say it's called One Shot Harry, One Trick Harry. It's a, it's a sort of detective book. Um, I don't even think it's officially out yet. I, it was just given to me. So I'm getting ready to sit down and read that. Um, and I just read, it took me a while to, it's been out a while. I read Max Brooks's new book, The uh, Evolution, which is probably two years old now. Um, but I finally got around to reading that. And then what else? There's a, there's a couple that are just sort of sitting around open. Um, I've become that guy that's reading like four or five books at the same time and then forget where I've left off and get mad at myself. I'm, I'm rereading Star Slammers, Simons and Star Slammers. Um, uh, 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 going back and studying a lot of Will Eisner stuff. I think in part just because Eisner, when in doubt, I always go back to Eisner. I always go back and, and read his stuff. Um, and, and I think that's about it. Um, and then of course my back issues of Playboy, which I read for the articles. So, yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, David, this has been a fantastic time. Final question as we let you go. Uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with the imposter syndrome zoop campaign and uh, everything else that you have going on? Uh, well, I, I do have a website that I seldom update. It's uh, davidfwalker.com. And from there, you can find all my socials. Um, and, you know, not on Twitter as much as I should be, but probably as much as my sanity will allow. Um, and then I've got, um, you know, I'm doing Instagram stuff, talking about maybe starting a Patreon, but that just seems like more work. I mean, I'm ultimately I'm a lazy person. So it's like, why would I want to do more stuff? Um, the, the imposter syndrome campaign runs through to the beginning of May. So I think there's about a little over two weeks left. And, um, and then I'm just going to be doing whatever wild stuff strikes my fancy. I mean, there are four projects I have going right now, five that I can't talk about. Um, I've got two series that are going to debut essentially work for higher stuff that'll that'll be out later this year and i've got two graphic novels one that'll be out in 2023 the other will be 2024 and then my first prose novel uh for scholastic which will be out in 2024 but again these are all things that i can only cryptically discuss so it's it's um i'm actually i have a ton of things going on and i just sort of have to keep it to myself which doesn't bode well for someone with imposter syndrome because then it's like well you know maybe the reason scholastic isn't putting out my book in a timely fashion is because they hate it and they figured out that they they bought something that sucks it's like well, only a moron thinks that way but you know i'm a moron sometimes or conversely you get to walk <laughs> around and know that you're full of really cool secrets yeah <laughs> yeah that just doesn't it's yeah, it's weird. It is so weird. But yes, I got lots of great juicy secrets. And and uh, and of course, Naomi, issue two just dropped. And um, we are 
as writers, Brian and I are wrapping up issue six. Jamal is, um, he's finishing up issue five right now. So we're almost done with that. And, and, and it feels like a really good send off for us as a team. And um, yeah. And, and there's, there, there's, there's, then there'll be more bitter root. It's, it's just, people are going to have to be patient. They're going to have to wait, but it's going to be pretty awesome. Excellent. Well, David, thank you so much for spending the time chatting with us. Thank you. It was fun. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom. Chris is on Infinite Earths and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. Uh, P.S. Matt and Will, sorry I made you read White Knight again. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks. A $3 donation gets you access to our new bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from ComicsXF, Liz Large from ComicsXF, Will Nevin from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, the ForceWorks character Sentry was apparently part of Combo Man. WMQA.